Well, thank you, Earl and Sarah. Thank you, Jason, all the musicians. What uh, wonderful music this morning. We certainly are reminded to look at Calvary, and uh, that's an important uh, image. That's an important place because of the important results. And uh, today we certainly are reminded of that, and I'm thankful for that truth and that song. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you've had a, a great week. We're slowly but surely getting through the month of July, and some of the hot weather that typically goes with it has certainly found its way uh, around us. And I'm glad you're here with us this morning to join us online as we're continuing uh, our ministry of Sunday morning services. And uh, of course, uh, other things along the week, Pastor Jason will be back at the end and he's going to uh, share with us some of those reminders for the week ahead. But I trust you've had a good week. It's the time of year when lots of families are traveling. And uh, so we know that folks may be looking in from all different places, but we're glad you're with us. This is still the month of July and I'm calling it Independence Month. And the last time I was here, we were celebrating Independence Day that weekend, and I am glad for the opportunity to come back again today uh, and speak again about the importance of our national heritage as Christians and the importance of the Bible and its truths that have impacted our country since its founding. And so my purpose uh, is to use July as that springboard to get us on this path of, of thinking about not only this month but in the weeks ahead, uh, the importance of being a Christian citizen in the land. And you can tell by the title slide that's up there. Today I'm titling this message, Righteous, Wise, and Blessed. Indeed, those are important concepts, and you'll see them interwoven into what we'll look at in just a moment. Uh, the last time I was here, I read the first part of Deuteronomy chapter 28. I'll not take the time to read a lengthy passage from that, uh, that chapter today, but just to remind us that Deuteronomy 28 is a chapter of covenant promises given to the nation of Israel, Moses would stand there on the mount and he would deliver God's message to the nation of Israel. And in that message, there were a series of promises, promises about blessings. The first half of the chapter through verse 14, Israel is commanded to follow God, to seek after his commandments, his statutes and his laws. And in so doing, they would be blessed in abundance. Uh, the, the image there is a flood of blessings would fall upon them if they followed God. But the last part of the chapter, indeed the greater part of the chapter, covers the other side of that discussion. It also warns of calamity and catastrophe for Israel if they indeed ignored God's directives. And by so doing, take God down from his rightful place as a supreme creator as the one who delivered Israel as a nation and one who established them and set them up. The second half of that chapter begins in verse 15 and runs through verse 68. And there's a list and variety of, of calamities that are referenced there. The, tra the traditional translations you will find it, even the contemporary the translations you will find it, the word cursed used. They shall be cursed if you turn away from God. Listen to just one verse from that section. It's really the introduction to that part of the passage, but it certainly lays the image for us of what God intended his people to know. But it shall come to pass in verse 15, Deuteronomy 28, if you will not listen to the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall fall upon thee and overtake thee. 
And again, the remainder of that chapter lists those curses. Curses in the field, curses at home, curses in a national and a local perspective. Indeed, the warnings are valid. Today, America is experiencing many of these calamities. I encourage you to take a moment and read, again, Deuteronomy 28. Take you all of five or six minutes. And just read it with the events of our land today. We have these similar calamities occurring. Lawlessness, homelessness, murder, violence, unrest, drug addiction, including the worst of all drugs, alcohol, disease, physical and mental uncertainty, of course the virus, all these things that grip our land. Some think these problems are economical, which means just put more money after them. Some people think these problems are political. So their solution is overthrow the current system and try to build a new political system. I submit these problems, whatever the solution may be in some people's eyes, are primarily spiritual problems of our land. And just like the people were warned in Deuteronomy 28, those who ignore and defy God are bound to reap confusion, chaos, disease, famine, curses across the land because a nation has turned its back on God in so many ways. So what happened to Israel? They received these great instructions, this covenant promise given to them as a nation. What happened to them when they left that mountain that day? Well, we find the rest of the story happens as you open the book of Joshua. And there Joshua leads the people across into the promised land. And they would go through the period of time known as the conquest of the promised land under Joshua's leadership. And then there would be the period of the judges. Of course, that's the next book after Joshua. And through that two books of Israel's history, some 360 years would elapse. And by the time we get in to the next phase of Israel's history as a nation, they are crying for a king. They want a human to lead them. And so we find as the story unfolds that about the year 1050 BC, Saul becomes king of Israel. Following Saul, of course, is David, and following David, his son Solomon. And if it had continued as it lineage would have, Solomon's son Rehoboam would have been the next king. Indeed, Solomon, by the time the nation of Israel get to Solomon, they had known the, what history now will call the golden age of Israel. They were more wealthy, more influential, stronger than nations around them. They had great influence. But this age would not last. Indeed, as the nation grew and expanded, they went through periods of turning away from God, even the kings themselves. Indeed, Israel's eventual downfall and its ruin would be of their own making. They made choices. They followed not after the path of God, but after their own hearts and deceitful lust. After Solomon's death, Rehoboam should have inherited a kingdom prepared to move into the new rule of a king who would lead them. 
However, his policies caused a split in the 12 tribes. Ten of those tribes would form the northern kingdom and two tribes the southern kingdom. We know that northern kingdom as it retained the name Israel, but the southern kingdom, comprised of Judah and Benjamin, would use the name Judah. So in 930 B.C., after some 120 years of unity as a nation, Israel divided. The kingdom split. Jeroboam, who was selected to be the king of Israel, he had been an advisor to Solomon, was the first of 18 kings who would rule Israel for a total of 208 years. The Bible tells us plainly that these kings did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Imagine that, for 200 years, there was hardly a time when a king did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. The Bible condemns Nadab, Basha, Ahab, Ahaziah, Jehoram, Jehoahaz, and several others with a verse that sounds like this. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. As a result, in 722, Israel would be invaded by the Assyrian army. They would be captured, brought back into the Assyrian nation, and history now knows them as the lost ten tribes of Israel. No remnant of them is to be found. Their choices, their decisions, their following of an evil king led them down this path of self-destruction. What about the southern kingdom? Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, was the first of 18 kings ruling the southern kingdom. For a combined 344 years, these 18 kings, of these 18 kings, only five would be men who would rule and do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. However, the sin of Judah also had its consequences. And in 586, Judah was overrun, captured, carried away into Babylon by the Babylonian army, modern-day Iraq. Interesting how some things just never seem to change. During the centuries, during these centuries of Israel's existence, the abundance of God's blessing on Israel, whether united or divided, rested squarely on the shoulders of one man, the king. He would either do what was right in the eyes of the Lord or do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And in doing so, led his people down that path, eventually leading to self-destruction. As the king prioritized God's commandments, laws, and statutes, so did the blessing of God follow. Now, of course, America knows no king and never has. And thus, there is no connection between one person and God's blessings. No, the leadership America, of America does not rest on the shoulders of one individual, but rather it rests on the shoulders of individual political parties whose, poli whose policies will, if elected, direct the country's laws, military, and resources, and also greatly influence the ethical and the spiritual life of the nation. Now, I think that's an important statement, so I want you to hear it again. The leadership of America does not rest on the shoulders of one individual, 
but rather on the shoulders of individual political parties whose policies will, if elected, direct the country's laws, militaries, and, uh, military and resources, and also greatly influence the ethical and spiritual life of a nation. That's an important truth to remember. America has a political system that does not put such overwhelming authority on the shoulders of any one person. But as our system has developed, it is on the shoulders of those political parties. Well, why is this important to hear in July, the year 2020? Because in a little over 100 days, we face another election. I know, we will get tired of seeing the commercials. We will get tired of hearing the banter and the political jargon and the political experts in one way or another will just overwhelm us to the point that we'll all feel like turning off the TV and the radio and the podcast and the online broadcast for sure. So get ready, here it comes. You see, the promises given in the covenant relationship that God established with Israel are the principles upon which we should view our republic. Thus, we must remember and always remember that elections are not about the persons whose names are on the ballot, but rather about the political parties, the platforms, and the policies they represent. A candidate always represents what their party endorses, promotes, and promises. And in our political system, labels like Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Green Party, and Constitution Party mean something because they all have a collected set of policies and promises that they're making to the American people. And whether it's the local, state, or national election, the candidate in each case is the face of their party and intends to support and implement their party's policies. So to make an election solely about a candidate's personality, their family, education, or even religious affiliation is a grave mistake. To focus on those things is to really miss the point of the opportunity for an election where candidates represent the party policies, not their individual policies. To think of an election as just personalities is to make an election nothing more than a popularity contest or a talent show competition. I trust we have more expectation of our election system than a popularity contest. However, I'm afraid that's how too many Americans and maybe too many Christians view an election. It's this person against this person. I like their personality, I don't like theirs. I like the way they say it, I don't like the way they say it. To do that is to stay in the shallow end of the discussion. May we never settle for such a shallow view. For to do so diminishes the capacity of our country to be led by capable and even Christian-minded individuals. To do otherwise is to make an election nothing more than a beauty contest. How did they sound? How did they look? What talents do they have? Congratulations, you're the winner. That's a very shallow expression of our political system. Now, the Scripture does have many things to say 
in reference to a nation. Psalm 33, 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Not blessed is the nation who is the most attractive leader, the most intelligent leader, the most educated leader, the most experienced leader. No, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteous, wise, and blessed. Explain, Psalms uh, 9, verse 17, explains how the wicked shall be condemned, as will all nations that forget God. Indeed, a nation that forgets God sets itself on a path of self-destruction. And I think we're seeing some of the fruits of that begin to show up in our land today. Indeed, if we seek the blessings of God on our country, it will mean much more than singing God Bless America. It will mean much more than having In God We Trust as our national motto imprinted on our money. It will mean much more than reciting that we are one nation under God. It will mean valuing the core of America's identity as a nation founded on a biblical truth and the expectation of a population who will vote based on biblical principles. Let for a moment our time and our ears be turned to the words of those, as a sampling of those who were involved in the founding of our nation and knew the importance of a biblical truth and a perspective of God that is in line with the Bible. Allow me to read some quotes. John Adams, familiar name to us, is up there on the, on the screen. Of course, a signer of the Declaration and the second president following George Washington. He would say, quote, the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. I will avow that I then believed and now believe that those general principles of Christianity are the eternal, are as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God. That statement leaves nothing to debate about the perspective of John Adams. Joseph Story, a lesser known name in a, the early American period, was a congressman, was appointed to the Supreme Court by James Madison. He would say, quote, one of the beautiful boasts of our municipal system of justice is that Christianity is a part of the common law. There never has been a period in which the common law did not recognize Christianity as lying at its foundation. See, those early practices of establishing law were built on what does the Bible say? What's the justice the Bible points us toward? Today, that system is marred much. George Washington, of course, a familiar name, would say, quote, to the distinguished character of patriot, it should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of Christian, end quote. What a great statement. Let us not just simply be civil patriots. Let us be Christian patriots. 
Daniel Webster, a senator and secretary of state. Quote, whatever makes men good Christians makes them good citizens, end quote. Noah Webster, no, no relation to Daniel, by the way, was a judge, a legislator, an educator. Noah Webster, a man always good with words. He said, quote, the moral principles and precepts found in the scriptures ought to form the basis of all our civil constitutions and laws. Last time I read the preamble to more than a dozen states' constitutions and referenced others which make that very same declaration of recognition and commitment to God. Why are these points important? What do, we, what do we glean from a few moments here on this topic and in the scriptures for a study that could take a lifetime to appreciate and value? I think there are three points for the patriot Christian to consider. First, don't be shallow and see an election as a popularity contest. It's not about the way he or she says it. It's not about their religious affiliation. It's about the party they represent. There's where the real core of the issue lies. Candidates are only the face of a party. And they seek an authority granted by we, the people, to impose their policies. And we need to understand what those policies are. A second point. Remember that for a born-again Christian, voting is not an opportunity. It is an obligation. Let that sink in for a moment. It is not an opportunity. It's not optional. It's not if, it's not if I have time, I'll go vote. It's an obligation that is cast firmly upon us and expected of us if righteousness is our intention and biblical ethics is our heartbeat, then Christians cannot be silent and sit on the sidelines. Shaping our country and her future cannot be left to the godless, the unrighteous, and the anarchist. Christians must make our voices heard and our votes count. To do otherwise is to desecrate every previous generation's work and sacrifice of preserving liberty. One 18th century English statesman and political thinker, Edmund Burke, wrote a statement I would be surprised if most of us, most of us haven't heard. Burke said this, quote, the only thing necessary for, tr for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing, end quote. We've probably all heard that said in one way or another. Indeed, it is true. But I would like to adjust his statement just a little bit for our time and circumstance. To say it this way, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil and for the fall of America is for born-again Christians to do nothing. To say, oh, it's politics, what do I have to do with that? Let's never forget 
the political structure of our land and the policies implemented by those in power will impact our freedoms and liberties, not just as Americans, but as Christians. And we need to make sure we're making a stand and making our voice known. Indeed, there is something to do. And here, 100 plus days out from the election, I must ask, are you registered to vote? Will you be informed on the positions of the parties and what they propose to do if elected? Will you use the blessings of liberty to exercise your right and obligation to vote? For that vote is an obligation that should be driven by a biblical ethic and a biblical expectation. Point three. Thus, at the forefront of this discussion, and it's true in any election, at the forefront of this discussion are not the candidates themselves. We will be flooded, overwhelmed with quotes, commercials, articles, blog posts, Twitter feeds, Facebook posts by candidates who are looking to get our ear and hear their best political speech. But we need to look beyond the candidate. Remember, to only look at the candidates is to make the election a beauty show. At the forefront are not the candidates, candidates themselves, but what the candidates represent in the policies and philosophies of their respected uh, political parties. We as born-again Christians cannot be silent and do nothing regarding the most important ethical issues of our day. I briefly list 10 things that are before us in this election particularly. But I list only 10. It would be easy to double or even triple this. And this is in no necessarily particular order. So think with me about the impact the current election season may bring upon these issues. The recognition of God and his place in our country's history, present existence, and future endeavors. What will that recognition be? Second, life. Life itself and the value of life. Will we as a nation, here's the question, will we as a nation continue to sanction the killing of unborn children at a rate of 16,500 per week? Think for a moment about the immensity of that number. How many great scientists, how many great researchers could be alive today to help in this virus pandemic, as it's being called? How many could be alive today if they hadn't been aborted 30 years ago? How many great political leaders that we cry for would have been alive today had they not been sacrificed at the altar of the abortion clinic? How many great pastors, evangelists, Spiritual leaders from the biblical perspective could be here today, echoing across the hills and valleys and plains and coast of our land the truth of the gospel if they had not been aborted 30 years ago. Will we continue to allow 16,500 plus lives per week 
to be taken. Third, marriage and the family. There is an attack, a full frontal attack on the biblical family. And that attack cannot be ignored or discounted. We must stand strong on what the, biblical, the Bible teaches about marriage and the family. Freedom to exercise our faith. Fourth, not just to worship within the walls of a church, but in the true ministry of preaching, evangelism, and spiritual commitment to the communities throughout our nation. Fifth, education. Who is responsible for the education of the children? That's the question to be asked. Will it be the parents or will it be the government? Six, sexuality. Will we follow the God-ordained identity of male and female, genetically imprinted and physically endowed for a life as God designed? Seventh, the appointment of judges. Will there be judges whose purpose is the intent of justice or just simply following a trail of social trends? Judges is an important ethical issue of our day. What about Israel? What will be our relationship as a nation to the nation whom God said in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Israel still has a special place in God's eye and in his plan for the future. And I believe the promises of Genesis 12, 3 is still true today, that we have an obligation to have a right relationship with Israel that supports them and protects them as best we can ally with them. Of course, here's the topic, number nine, law enforcement and other first responders. The question, how can a society remain safe without proper law enforcement? That answer will come in the next election. And last, but certainly not least, the financial resources of our land America is a wealthy land, but it is also an extremely indebted land. How will we use our national wealth and the debt that is hung around the necks of every American moving forward? Yes, these are just ten. But I hope within those ten we, we see the importance and priority of this next election. We see the importance of understanding how we must as a nation turn back to God. There are other issues to discuss for sure, and maybe we'll get to some of those as time allows in future, in the future. And there are details that go with each one of them. But until we get the priorities right, we'll never get the details right. And those details must reflect an important worldview based upon biblical truth. So it will be important, it will be important in the weeks ahead to read the actual platforms and policies of the political parties. Don't fall for it's this candidate versus this candidate. Look deeper. Be an intelligent Christian voter 
You don't have to know every detail of every situation, every candidate, or even every issue. But know what the biblical stand is on that issue and see which party aligns best with it. All this should happen about the time of the conventions. Over the next course of the next month or so, six weeks, the conventions will take place in one format or another. But one of the most important things will come out of each of those conventions is going to be their party platform. And I will, as we get closer down the road, bring some of those issues from the platform and the very quotes that they represent to see how they align with these issues. Look at our title screen again. I would encourage us today, along with red, white, and blue, to be a nation endeavoring to be righteous, wise, and blessed. That's the intent of the purpose of Scripture. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. Righteousness exalts a nation. Wisdom will lift us up as we seek the blessings of God Almighty in his wonderful hand. I've mentioned born again several times. That is not a word unique to me, nor to this church. It is a word that comes right out of Scripture from the very lips of Jesus Christ, the Lord himself. John chapter 3, marvel not that I say unto you, he spoke to Nicodemus, that you must be born again. So I have to ask you, wherever you're sitting, whenever you're viewing this, have you been born again? Have you recognized the sinfulness of your own heart in life? Do you realize the inability of yourself to do anything that will meet God's standard of righteousness and holiness? And by so doing, confess before the Lord your sins and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and receive the gift of new life. That's what being born again is. It's receiving new life in Christ. If that's your need today, I trust you'll pray a simple prayer and ask the Lord to forgive you, that you accept his gift, and that you receive eternal life through Christ. Let us know here at the church. Go to our website. Find a way to contact us. We'll help you as best we can. What if you are a born-again Christian? then I think there's no better reference from the Scriptures in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, which we have heard, but we need to hear it again. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, God says, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. America has had many trials, many times of testing, Politically, socially, wars, many things. And once again, we come to realize that our only help, our only solution, is built upon the reality that we need God's hand. I want our land to seek God's face, to know his blessing, to turn from its wicked ways, and to acknowledge him. I trust that will be the prayer of our hearts as we move forward in the things we seek to accomplish in the ministry of our lives, in our church, the outreach to our community, and the breadth and depth of this great country of America. May it be true that we call upon God. I trust we'll all take this and apply it to our hearts 
and begin that journey over the next 100 plus days of understanding what it will mean for Christians to vote. Encourage others. We're going to be promoting and reminding you of dates and important deadlines to get things done so that your voice will be heard. What, a, what an amazing thing it would be if the born-again, evangelical, Bible-minded Christians would go to the polls in 100-plus days and vote with a conscience of a biblical worldview. I think it would make an amazing difference in our land. Let's pray as I close. Father, thank you for the time you've given us these few moments to look again at your word, to glean its truth, to see the lesson that Israel went through in their own self-destruction. May the history books of the future not record it of this land. And may we as Bible-believing, born-again Christians, stand and make our voices heard and our vote count that this land indeed may know again your blessing and the things that we seek to do. May they honor you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.